Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I news 100 years ago this week, and it's about World War I news now, news and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Today is July 19, 2017, and this week we're joined by Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, the storyteller and the historian Richard Rubin and Jonathan Bratton, Kevin Fitzpatrick, World War I historian and expert on New York's Governor's Island, and James Portnow, whose Extra Credits YouTube channel has just crossed a million subscribers, showing that history's not a snooze. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist of the World War I Centennial Commission, and your host. Welcome. Our Wayback Machine has moved back in time 100 years. It's the week of July 16, 1917, and there's big happenings in Washington, D.C. Dateline, July 20, 1917. Headline, Draft of Men for New National Army is begun. It will continue for 22 hours. The scene is a large room in the Senate office building. Chalkboards cover the back wall. A double-wide table is set in front, and on the table, a large glass bowl filled with 10,500 capsules that contain numbers. The room is filled with press. At 9.30 a.m., Newton D. Baker, the U.S. Secretary of War, calls the room to order and states... We are met here to conduct a lottery or draft by which the National Army and such additions as may be necessary to bring the regular army and the National Guard to war strength are to be selected. This is an occasion of very great dignity. It represents the first application of the principles believed by many of us to be democratic, equal, and fair in selecting soldiers to defend the national honor abroad and at home. Blindfolded, Baker announces, Let us begin. He reaches into the large bowl and pulls out a capsule. I have drawn the first number, says Mr. Baker, in a tone of a man who has done something epochal. He holds the tiny capsule aloft. An announcer takes it from him and breaks it open, taking out the tiny slip of paper that will change lives forever. The number is 258, he cries. 258, echoes a voice of the tally chief. Another attendant posts the number 258 on the blackboard in the rear. This begins a process that lasts for 22 hours, with 600 numbers being drawn every hour. And so the first men are chosen through the new American Selective Service System. Dateline, July 20, 1917. Headline. Naval gunners on armed American merchant ship battle with German submarine. After merchant crew takes to lifeboats, men cheered and congratulated by the U-boat sailors for their gallant fight. This is a first-person account by the chief petty officer in charge of the armed guard aboard the U.S. steamship Moraney. We were attacked by a submarine at 4.05 a.m. on June 12, 1917. She was off our port quarter about 9,000 yards away. She fired four or five shots before we located her. We swung around until our stern faced the submarine and returned fire at a range of about 7,000 yards. 
After a half-hour fight, we were hit in the gasoline tank aft, and a fire started. It was reported to me that the ammunition aft was running low. Immediately, I lined up the forward gun's crew with the merchant's crew to pass ammunition from forward to aft. About an hour later, fire broke out all over the ship, and it became impossible for the men to pass any more ammunition. I went for and reached the bridge, being burned on the way there. About this time, our steering gear was shot away, and we started to go around in circles. Coming down off the bridge, I saw the captain and the boatswain ready to lower the lifeboat. The captain said to come and get in the lifeboat as it was starting to burn. I asked him to wait. He said he would hold on to the boat as long as possible for me. I then noticed two of the gun's crew in the lifeboat. I ordered them out to come with me. We went forward and manned the forward gun, which we fired four times before the firing pin went out of commission. As we could fire no more, and as the captain called that the lifeboat was burning, we got into the boat. Seeing us in the water, the submarine called the boat alongside. They congratulated us, shook hands with the captain, and told us that it was the best fight they had ever seen any merchantman put up. The Germans treated two of the men who had been wounded and returned us to our boats. The commander of the submarine said he would have towed us towards the beach but for the fact that we had called for assistance. Both of these stories were in the Friday, July 20th issue of The Official Bulletin, Volume 1, Issue 60. Now, The Official Bulletin is the U.S. government war gazette published by order of the president by George Creel, his propaganda chief. We republish each issue of the Bolton on the centennial anniversary of its original publication. This is an amazing resource for historians and history buffs, educators and students, social and media anthropologists, and folks like me who just happen to be deeply interested in the actual words published by the U.S. government 100 years ago this week in The War That Changed the World. The URL is easy to remember. Just go to www.cc.org slash bulletin or follow the link in the podcast notes. Now we're joined by Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. Eastern Europe is still a major aspect of this conflict with Russia disintegrating as an allied power and for Balkans, who started all this. Mike, we look forward to your post. Thank you, Teo. Our headlines for this week, Allied War Effort Foundering, Russian Revolutionaries Call for an End to War, A New Nation Emerging from the Ashes, and this is special to the Great War Project. Outside the Western Front, there are many political and military developments a century ago in the First World War, in Russia and in the Balkans. It is in Russia, writes historian Martin Gilbert, that the main threat laid to the Allied ability to make war or to plan for a peace based on the conflict. On this day, July 16th, an uprising in Petrograd, the Russian capital, is led by Leon Trotsky, the communist revolutionary. The demand, according to historian Gilbert, an immediate end to the war. 6,000 sailors joined the revolt, and Trotsky believed it would lead to revolution. It did not. In reaction, officer cadets loyal to the provisional government and supporting the continuation of the war attacked the headquarters of Pravda, the communist newspaper. They smashed the facilities to pieces. These developments forced Vladimir Lenin, the revolutionary leader, to go into hiding. Lenin is certain he is targeted for arrest or worse, assassination. Russia is still fighting the war, but just barely. 
its opponents have not succeeded to force Russia to declare it is making a separate peace with Germany. That is the goal of the revolutionaries. But as Gilbert reports, the Russian military successes were coming to an abrupt end. The Germans open up a 12-mile breach in the Russian line. In the process, the Germans take 6,000 Russian troops prisoner. Thousands more fled from the battlefield. When news of this debacle reaches Petrograd, it forces the prime minister to resign. The Russian advance had turned into a retreat, almost a rout, writes Gilbert. Tens of thousands of Russian soldiers simply threw down their rifles and fled from the war zone. Hundreds of officers are murdered. Elsewhere in the little war in the Balkans, indeed where it all started, negotiations are taking place all through July on the island of Corfu in Greece, present where representatives of several of the South Slav ethnic minorities, among them Croats, Serbs, and Slovenes. Their goal, to create a new nation carved out from some of the ethnically dominated territory that Austria-Hungary has lost in the war. More specifically, a South Slav nation, Yugoslavia, bringing together the three largest ethnic groups. The meeting in Corfu is a success. It results in the Pact of Corfu. The pact calls for the formation of a government led by the Serbian royal family with a constituent assembly elected by secret and universal suffrage. The idea of this new nation appealed in particular to the United States, where there were many South Slav emigrant groups and where the possible emergence of democratic, nationally cohesive systems on the ruins of an imperial structure was welcomed as an advance in human relations. The post-war world is beginning to take shape. And that's the news from the Great War Project for this week a century ago. Thank you, Mike. That was Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. As we do every week, we want to tell you what's going on on the Great War channel on YouTube. World War I, 100 years ago this week, from a more European perspective. This week's new episodes include A New Out of the Trenches, where Indy Nidell, the host, addresses your feedback and comments. Operation Beach Party, Mustard Gas Unleashed, and Maria Bakariva, the first Russian women's battalion of death. Follow the link in the podcast notes or search The Great War on YouTube. We've talked about the Espionage Act and the government crackdown on dissent a few times this month. We're going to give the last word on this to our intrepid duo, the storyteller and the historian, With us are author and storyteller Richard Rubin and historian Jonathan Bratton. With the United States at war in 1917, the U.S. government made a concerted effort to crack down on any voices that might dissent against the war, the government, and even the military. To that end, Congress passed the Espionage Act of 1917 and then added more restrictions in the Sedition Act of 1918. In fact, Congress passed the Espionage Act on June 15, 1917, just two months after we entered the war. And the Sedition Act, which was passed 10 months later, went so far as to make it a crime to display the flag of any of our enemy nations on your wall or in your window or anything like that. So if you happen to be an immigrant from Germany who was nonetheless a loyal American, you had to take down that German flag or else you risked going to prison. Uh, People went to prison for a lot of things back then. It's something that we forget. Um, The most chilling story, I think, is one of a traveling salesman who was passing through Montana and he went to a bar 
one evening and somebody overheard him referring to Herbert Hoover's food restrictions in service of the war effort as, quote, a big joke. And he ended up being sentenced to 7 to 20 years in prison. And what's amazing about this is if you look at the history of the legislation on it, this was, the wheels were going into motion on this before war was declared. The first request from Wilson to Congress came in February of 1917. We didn't declare war until April. So he very obviously had this in mind. And one of the things that held up the passage of the legislation so long from April to June was nothing less than the freedom of the press. He wanted complete censorship of the press. And that motion failed by one vote in the Senate. Otherwise, we would have had complete censorship, which is just absolutely So crazy. in 1917, we came within one vote of losing freedom of the press, right. uh, a time-honored tradition in this country that goes back to colonial days. Right. And, I mean, even as it was, as you pointed out, freedom of speech essentially disappeared because now, and not only freedom of speech for civilians, but freedom of speech for the military. You couldn't say anything in the military that was anti-military. You can complain about the, ch the food at Chow. You can complain, you're, my uniform's too tight, it's restrictive. I mean, a, a, if you wanted to go fully letter of the law, that's how bad it would be. And, and these acts, especially the Sedition Act of 1918, gets into stunning detail. Uh, you can't say anything about the flag. You can't say, gee, I think green, white, and blue would be more <laughs> pleasing to the eye than red, white, and blue. You could have gone to prison for that. Uh, if you'd set up an apple cart selling apples in front of a, an army recruitment center, you could have been arrested for interfering with recruitment and sent to prison for that. Um, if you were overheard saying, gee, I joined the Navy, but I think those bell-bottom sailors have to wear <laughs> look ridiculous— you could be arrested and sent to prison for that. And we laugh about it, but a lot of people were arrested and right. sent to prison and, in fact, weren't uh, freed until after Warren Gamaliel Harding was elected president in 1920, including, by the way, the socialist leader, Eugene Victor Debs, uh, who went to prison not for criticizing the war, but for criticizing the arrest and imprisonment of other people who'd criticized the war. That was enough to get him arrested and sent to federal prison for 10 years, uh, from which, by the way, he ran for president in 1920 and got a couple of million votes. And the amazing thing, the, the Espionage Act, you can kind of see some reason for it to be passed, considering there was considerable uh, espionage oh, absolutely. happening, uh, of course, uh, here in Maine, we have our own very incident of the 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 bridge, bo uh, the attempt to blow up the bridge between uh, Canada and Maine and up in in 1915 with a uh, German agent who didn't really know his dynamite too well and put it out of action for one day. But that was enough to to frighten everybody oh. within the entire continental U.S. If he'd were... succeeded, it would have just been game over. Yeah, it would have been done. But no, there were, there, were, uh, there were sabotage acts uh, throughout the country by German agents. This is no joke. Mm -hmm. This was not mere paranoia. Uh, the island of Black Tom in New York Harbor, which was an ammunition depot, was blown up. Uh, sending shrapnel into the Statue of Liberty and skyscrapers in Lower Manhattan. The blast was heard as far away as Philadelphia and even Maryland. Uh, so things really were happening, uh, and perhaps something was needed. 
but this went way, way too far right. uh, in the cause to make the world safe for democracy. Uh, it's often forgotten. We came very close, actually, to destroying our own democracy. That was the storyteller Richard Rubin and the historian Jonathan Bratton talking to us about the crackdown on dissent and the Espionage Act of 1917. The Storyteller and the Historian is now a full hour-long podcast. Look for it on iTunes or follow the link in the podcast notes. We've moved forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now, news about the centennial and the commemoration. In commission news, over the past three weeks, we've been talking about President Trump's visit to Paris as the guest of French President Macron to participate in their July 14th Bastille Day ceremonies. This year included the traditional parade of French military might down the Champs-Élysées, but with a slight twist, the inclusion of American troops and vehicles. Joining the thousands of French soldiers, 241 horses, 63 airplanes, and 29 helicopters were 150 U.S. soldiers, airmen, sailors, and Marines, including a doughboy-clad color guard and American jet flyovers. The inclusion of the American armed forces was to commemorate the arrival of U.S. troops to France 100 years ago. As President Trump and President Macron stood in review, Macron remarked, on this day of national celebration, we must not ever forget the price that we paid for winning our freedom and our rights, the price which we are prepared to pay to defend them, because it is they, our rights and freedom, which unite us and make France, France. The United States is one of our friends. Nothing will separate us ever. The presence at my side of Donald Trump and his wife is a sign of our friendship that travels time. I want to thank them here and to thank the United States for the choices made over a hundred years. You can access videos, photos, and articles about the event by browsing our social media wall at www.cc.org social. From the U.S. National World War I Centennial Events Register at www.cc.org events, here is our upcoming event pick of the week. This week, we focus on Topeka, Kansas. The Kansas Historical Society has an exhibit on view at the Kansas Museum of History in Topeka, which opens through May 2018. It's entitled, The Extraordinary Adventures of Colonel Hughes, and features the story of one extraordinary Kansan soldier, James Clark Hughes. Hughes began his service as a member of the Kansas National Guard and was sent to the Texas border with the American Expeditionary Forces in 1916. He joined the U.S. Army and then served from 1917 to 1948 and fought in both world wars, spending a cumulative 41 months as a POW, a prisoner of war. As a member of the U.S. Army, he photographed battlefields and towns in Europe during World War I, these photographs are being made public for the first time at the exhibit. During the Second World War, Colonel Hughes was captured at Bataan and recorded his daily survival as a Japanese prisoner of war. The exhibit displays his photographs, his diary excerpts, and many of the belongings from the wars which he donated to the Museum of History. Learn more about Colonel Hughes and preview this unique and special exhibit by following the link in the podcast notes. 
for our next featured event and for a profile of a 100 Cities, 100 Memorials project. And just because he's an interesting guy, we want to welcome our next guest, Kevin Fitzpatrick, author of World War I New York, A Guide to the City's Enduring Ties to the Great War. Kevin is also the program director for the World War I Centennial Committee for New York City. Welcome, Kevin. Hi, Theo. Thanks for having me on as a guest today. Kevin, let's start with Governor's Island itself. Give us a quick synopsis of what it is and what it was. Well, anyone that's been to the Statue of Liberty, you have to pass Governor's Island. It's on your port side. Governor's Island, it's in New York Harbor. It's 172 acres. Um, it gets its name because uh, back in the colonial era, it was the domain of the Dutch and then English governors. So there's no hyphen in it. It's not possessive. It's plural, governors. And since the colonial era, it's been a U.S. Army base. So the Army was there until 1966. And the Coast Guard moved in, and they were there until 1996. And since 2003, it's been a city park. And it is actually the biggest World War I collection of monuments and memorials than any other place in the city or the state, even more than Central Park. And so it has a lot of history, and it has a lot of monuments and memorials to visit. Kevin, you've been the organizing force for a reenactor event on the island. It's sounding like quite an event for 2017. What can you tell us about it? Yes, we started it last year um, as a one-day event, and we had 30 reenactors. We drove 12,000 people to the island, to the Governor's Island National Monument, uh, which is run by the National Park Service. And it's really great because we are at Fort Jay, and Fort Jay was a very important army post during the Great War. It's also where General Pershing departed uh, New York for a sailing to France. And it's also where the first military action took place in the war. Um, shortly after the U.S. declared war on Germany and Central Powers, just after midnight, troops went from Governor's Island and seized all the ships in the harbor. And those ships then became troop transports to take the doughboys to France. So we really are in a fantastic uh, World War I location right on the parade ground. This year, it's September 16th and 17th. It's open to the public. And we think it's the biggest World War I event on the East Coast. Uh, we'll have around 70 reenactors or more. Uh, we're going to have a tank, a 1917 Renault, ambulances, Dodge utility vehicle, motorcycle, and probably my favorite person who's coming is General Pershing, David Shuey, with his horse, Aura Lee. So we'll have a tank and a horse in the same place. So I'm really happy about that. So um, we've had a lot of back and forth with the... Uh, the ferry, the park service, um, the tank owner, the Collins Foundation, um, about getting a tank through Manhattan and onto a ferry onto Governor's Island. So it's been really special to see. So combined with the authors and experts we're going to have out there and living historians, it's going to be two days of really, really fun events to see. And we're going to bivouac on the island too, so we'll be you know, camping out on the, on the parade ground. So, Kevin, I first met you in my capacity as the program manager for the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project, and you submitted some memorials to the program. How do they tie in? Sure. Well, after the war, um, the 16th Infantry was located on Governor's Island. And, of course, Governor's Island was the headquarters of First Army. And so they named all of the roads on Governor's Island for soldiers killed in the war from the 16th. And over time, um, a couple of them have gone missing. So we're going to restore and replace those. Um, another one was damaged. And so we will be rededicating those on September 16, 17, as part of the activities for World War I History Weekend. One, it's very important. It's for uh, Private Merle David Hay from Iowa, who 
was one of the first three Americans to be killed in the war in November 1917. So we're going to be rededicating Hay Road. Uh, Captain Harry Kimmel, uh, Distinguished Service Cross winner, we're going to be re rededicating his monument. And General Pershing, there is a Pershing memorial tree uh, planted on the centennial of his birth in 1960. The tree is doing fantastic. It's about six stories tall, um, but the bronze plaque has gone missing. So we're going to rededicate that as well on Pershing Day um, on the island. Kevin, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks, and I hope to see you on the ferry this year, Teo. <laughs> Thank you. That was Kevin Fitzpatrick, citizen historian, World War I centennial advocate, author, event organizer, and man about Manhattan. Mark your calendars for an extraordinary event taking place on Governor's Island, a short ferry hop off the tip of Manhattan, coming up this September 16th and 17th. Follow the link in the podcast notes. In our international report this week, we'll start by visiting an art project in New Zealand. This ties in with our story about the draft picks in Washington, D.C. this week, a hundred years ago. The project is called Luck of the Draw and was commissioned by the New Zealand First World War Centenary Program Office. The program reflects on the issues of conscription 100 years ago. The program office asked several of New Zealand's young emerging artists aged between 18 and 25 to respond to film footage of the first conscription ballot being drawn from a small, unassuming wooden box, which the Kiwis nicknamed the Death Box. The lottery of life and death. The word lottery is really contrasting. If you were to say it now and then, you know, what people would associate it with. I mean, now you'd be like, oh, it's, you know, positive win the lotter, but then it was like the lottery of the ballots, you're going to get sent off to war. The conscription film was super interesting. People are kind of smiling for the camera and pulling out drawers and looking at cards and turning things and it's very demonstrative. They're like showing you the marble and it's kind of, there's a certain pride to it. It's kind of disconnected from the fact that they're choosing people to go to war. That instinct, um, when I first received the brief of the project, was nothing really. I couldn't even relate to something that happened so far back in history. What life was like a hundred years ago. We often forget that the New Zealand population in 1914, during the First World War through to 1919 really, when they came home, was only a million people. And Māori, 50,000 in New Zealand at the time, no more than that. Back in the day, during the war times, um, people were forced into war, forced into compulsory enlistment. If you would have gone and spoken to the people who were going through that, you know, you would probably be overwhelmed by what they're feeling. Dance can be used to portray that really well. And we can portray um, anger, sadness, maybe even a bit of the happiness when they return. Those Left Behind, a short play by Nathan Joe. Scene. The stage should be filled with a chorus of women, wives, mothers and daughters. They all smile and speak in a forced, polite and pleasant tone. Not all of them need to speak, some should merely nod and smile robotically. They are lined up dressed in their Sunday best, that is to say they're dressed to go to church or for a nice brunch or high tea. They wear nice white gloves but they are covered in splashes of blood. The artifact is now housed at the Te Papa New Zealand National Museum. 
turning to the arts and young artist community for a take on World War I commemoration strikes us as a really innovative approach for commemoration. Learn more, see, and hear some of these great works by following the link in the podcast notes. Turning our attention to London, this week, two replica World War I planes landed in England to participate in a national tour called Vimy Flight, a commemoration of the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Vimy Ridge and Canada's 150th birthday. The planes will be on display at the Jet Aircraft Museum at London's International Airport through Sunday. Both Newport 11s are replicas of the fighter planes that helped Canada win the battle at Vimy Ridge 100 years ago. Only two of the thousands of the original Newport 11s still exist, and both reside in museums in France. These replicas, though made of metal and non-flammable materials, not wood, are perfect copies of the originals. Learn more about the Vimy flight and the plane's tour schedule by following the link in the podcast notes. Today, in our Spotlight on the Media section, we're going to feature a YouTube channel called Extra Credits. They have an interesting mix of content that's based on gaming and somehow folds in history. And they recently crossed the million subscriber mark. Joining us is James Portnow, lead writer and co-creator of Extra Credits, to talk about how they've managed to make history relevant and interesting to the YouTube generation. James, first of all, congratulations on your million subscriber mark. That's not easy to do. Thanks. It's, it's been a number of years. It's a good feeling. Now, your YouTube channel started being about games and gaming, and it makes sense to me, sort of a topical, non-technical approach, and that you'd find an audience with that. But how did history sneak into the mix? Well, so I'm a game designer by trade, and having done this for so long, I started looking at how we could apply this to other fields, the things that we've learned. Because over the last century, uh, since the First World War, we've spent billions of dollars, we've spent more than in the rest of human history combined on learning how to engage somebody through uh, television, music, film, games. We just study how to get somebody interested in the things we present. And it's high time that we use some of those ideas uh, on something other than our leisure time. And so I started uh, talking to a lot of school boards and superintendents and that sort of thing about this. And very often they were like, that sounds great, but show me an example. So Extra History is simply us taking the things we've learned from uh, making games and making films and applying them to teaching history. James, I'm curious. Did your audience do the transition with you easily? Oh, yeah. Uh, Extra History is now more watched than Extra Credits. Uh, we, it was funny because we did. We got a call from somebody at YouTube because once your channel gets to a certain size, you have somebody who kind of like monitors your channel. And they said, you can't, you can't put history on a gaming channel. You're going to kill your channel. But we said, you don't know this audience, right? There's actually a lot of overlap there. There's a lot of the things that um, we explore in games, and there's a lot of the same thinking that goes into thinking about history. And yet, uh, simply by the way history is often presented as simply proper nouns and dates, uh, we lose all those people. And so we said, we're going to do this thing. And uh, they, they all came with us, and it's grown so much more because we've also brought in an audience that's interested in history. Uh, you got me curious. What do you think the demographic of your audience is? Is it young? Is it old? Is it uh, mid-20s, 30s? 
our audience actually has a fairly good demographic range, but I would say it skews young. Um, it's 18 to 34 is definitely our core demo. So James, why do you think your viewers are responding to the subjects that normally have a pretty bad rep? I mean, I think that it's simply because of how they're presented. I don't think that there's any human knowledge which is uninteresting inherently. I think it's simply the way that we try and convey it that makes the difference. And whether it's talking about highly technical science topics or economics or history, uh, we get people in the comments all the time who say, oh man, in high school, I thought I hated this subject, but after seeing it presented in a way that appeals to me, that's trying to be relevant to my generation, to who I am, this is something that I'm really interested in. I went and spent all day looking into the, whatever the topic was. Well, as you publish new episodes, especially on World War One, be sure to let us know so we can mention them to this audience. Absolutely. We actually have one uh, series on Bismarck coming up, which I think is very important understanding the lead up and sort of the unification of Germany that puts all the pieces in place for the dominoes to fall for, uh, for World War I. James, you've immersed yourself in the subject. So why do you think World War I is relevant today? Well, especially today, I feel like there's so much about World War I. I mean, it was a society that didn't believe that such a war could happen they were outside of living memory of the Napoleonic War. And I feel as though we are sitting in the same space where we are outside of living memory of a truly catastrophic war. And there's this common belief that our society has moved past any such massive destruction. I'd like to think that's true, but in order for that to be true, we need to learn the lessons of World War I. We need to take a look at this and see and make sure it doesn't happen again. That was James Portnow, co-creator and lead writer for the hit YouTube channel, Extra Credits. Learn more about James and Extra Credits by following the link in the podcast notes or looking for them on YouTube. It's time for our Articles and Posts segment, where we explore the World War I Centennial Commission's rapidly growing website at www.cc.org. This week in the news section is an article, New York National Guard reported for World War I duty 100 years ago. The article talks about how on July 12, 1917, President Woodrow Wilson had ordered all 112,000 National Guard soldiers across the country to report for duty as part of the buildup of the National Army. New York's guardsmen, along with those from Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, North and South Dakota, and Nebraska, were all instructed to report on July 15th to their local armories and begin to prepare to ship out. Read the story about the New York National Guard's great mobilization by visiting the link in the podcast notes. In our Write blog, which explores World War I's influence on contemporary writing and scholarship, this week's post ties into making history relevant to the digital native generation. The post title is, Journalist Tweets World War I to French Youth, plus her exclusive Twitter feeds from Bastille Day in Paris. 
Stephanie Trouillard is a young French journalist with a rapidly growing following on her blog and her Twitter feed as she tries to give a fresh face to World War I using social media. This week on Right, France 24 Stephanie Trouillard tells us about her personal and professional passions driving her innovative historical writing project. And as a special bonus, she shared part of her tweet feed from Bastille Day in Paris where she covered President Trump meeting French President Emmanuel Macron. Don't miss this alternate up-close view of that historic day in our Write blog, which is at www.cc.org slash W-W-R-I-T-E, or follow the link in the podcast notes. And that story is a perfect transition to The Buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, what do you have for us? This week we shared a great photo on our Instagram and Facebook pages taken on July 17, 1917 in New York. Two soldiers stand outside the 71st Regiment Armory, one of them an American doughboy, and the other a Canadian kiltie, a Highlander decked out in kilt and Glengarry hat. The image sparked some lighthearted conversation on Facebook as people compared and contrasted their rifles held upright next to one another in front of each soldier. It's a great view of these two neighboring nations' soldiers, uniforms, and gear, and a bit of a reminder that although America was just beginning to ramp up mobilization, Canada had been in the war since 1914 and had, just a few months before this photo was taken, undergone the trial and tribulation that was the Battle of Vimy Ridge. You should head over to our Facebook page to check out the photo and participate in the conversation. Lastly this week, we're going to close out with a post on Facebook from Steve Gerard. After a two-day journey, the 5th Marine Regiment arrived at the French railhead of Gondrecourt on July 17, 1917, the same day as that photo we talked about previously was taken in New York. Shown in the colorized photograph included in the Facebook post, we see the bulk of the 5th Marine Regiment offloading in Gondrecourt, while the 1st Battalion continued on to the Menocourt railhead. Soon after settling into their temporary new homes in France, the Marines began a new training regime alongside the famed French Blue Devils of the 8th, 30th, 70th, and 115th Bataillon de Chasseurs Alpins, training that they would certainly need for upcoming fighting in 1918. You should go to Facebook to check out the post for further detail about the 5th Marines and their journey from America to France, and follow our Facebook page to see more posts like this from Steve Gerard. Thanks, Catherine. And we welcome your comments and discussion of this week's episode on Facebook. The new podcast announcement will be on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash WW1Centennial. Drop in and tell us what you think of the episode. And that's it for World War I Centennial News for this week. We want to thank our guests, Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog and his post about Russia and the Balkans. Richard Rubin and Jonathan Bratton, and their storyteller and the historian segment about the U.S. government's crackdown on dissent in 1917. Kevin Fitzpatrick, author and tour guide, speaking to us about Governor Island's World War I History Weekend. James Portnow, lead writer and co-creator for YouTube's Extra Credit Channel. Catherine Akey, the commission's social media director and also the line producer for the show. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. 
Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. This show is a part of that. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And, of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We rely entirely on your donations. No government appropriations or taxes are being used. You can support these programs with a tax-deductible donation by going to www.cc.org slash donate, all lowercase. Or if you're on your smartphone, you can text the word WW1 to 41444. That's the letters WW, the number one, text it to 41444. Any amount is appreciated. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at www.cc.org slash cn, on iTunes and Google Play at www.centennial news. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at www.cc and we're on Facebook at www.centennial. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to share the stories you're hearing here with someone about the war that changed the world. So long. I may be gone for a long, long time, long, long time, yes, a long, long time, but when I go, you may know that I'm always fine for the day when you'll be mine. Be good to me for a long, long time, rain or shine, sweetheart mine, and I'll be just as true to you as to the red 